0: Oh, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian O'Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Wendy Green, Professor of Law at Drexel University Klein School of Law and Francis Lewis Scholar in Residence at Washington and Lee University School of Law. We will discuss her article, Splitting Hairs, the 11th Circuit's Take on Workplace Bans Against Black Women's Natural Hair in EEOC v. Catastrophe Management Solutions, which was published in the University of Miami Law Review, and we'll also discuss her other work in the area. So welcome to the program, Wendy.
1: Thanks so much, Brian, for having me. It's wonderful to talk about this project with you today.
0: Yeah. So I'm just so excited about this paper, as well as all of your extraordinarily successful advocacy work in the area, which I hope we have an opportunity to talk about later in the program.
1: Well, absolutely. You know, you follow me on Twitter, so um, you know that I love to talk about hashtag free the hair.
0: (laughs) Hashtag free the hair, indeed. Um, so, So Wendy, for listeners who might not be as familiar with how federal discrimination law works, I wonder if you could sort of provide a sort of explanation of what kinds of discrimination are prohibited, what kinds of discrimination you're primarily working on, and also kind of what a plaintiff would have to show sort of in the abstract in order to make out a successful discrimination claim.
1: Great. So my work largely focuses on Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which is a federal anti-discrimination law that prohibits workplace discrimination on the basis of race, color, sex, national origin, and religion. Now, there are other federal civil rights statutes that prohibit discrimination on the basis of other classifications like age with the Age Discrimination Employment Act, as well as with disability, whether it's an actual disability, a record of having a disability or perceived disability under the Americans with Disabilities Act. And we also have um, Section 1981 of the 1866 Civil Rights Act, which has been interpreted to prohibit race and color, intentional race and color discrimination in the employment context. So my scholarship on grooming codes discrimination, or what may also be known as appearance discrimination, Uh, centrally focuses on the ways in which uh, individuals have challenged grooming policies in workplaces that um, either regulate or prohibit African descendants who don natural hairstyles like Afros, braids, twists, and locks. And they challenge these grooming policies. Um, Sometimes they are express bans that um, prohibit natural hairstyles. Other times they're what were called as neutral grooming policies that are interpreted to, to exclude natural hairstyles um, from being adorned in the workplace or sometimes being covered in the workplace as well. And so with that being said, you have um, plaintiffs who will challenge, say, natural hair bands as a form of either intentional race discrimination, um, in some instances, intersectional discrimination on the basis of race and sex, and in other instances, they will challenge what we know is neutral grooming policies that ultimately bar natural hairstyles as a form of unintentional discrimination and challenge it under what we know as the disparate impact theory. So basically what you would be, uh, you would be producing evidence that, say, a, uh, a policy that prohibits Uh, locks will disproportionately affect or burden or disadvantage or exclude African descendants from employment opportunities because it is a hairstyle that African descendants, you know, commonly or uh, disproportionately wear as vis-a-vis other types of members of racial groups, of other racial groups. Um, uh, In in an intentional discrimination uh, case, It really does depend, you know, it's like the lawyerly answer, right, in terms of how do you prove intentional discrimination. And one of the things that happens here is that uh, the federal courts have essentially interpreted uh, Title VII's protections against race discrimination as only, uh, you know, protecting individuals from discrimination on the basis of immutable characteristics. And this idea of this immutability doctrine is based upon a notion that the trait has to be fixed or um, it has to be proven to be say, uh, something that you were born with or biological or inheritable na- in nature, something that you cannot change or is very difficult to change. And in these grooming policy cases that challenge natural hairstyles that African descendants commonly adorn. Per this immutability doctrine, right now, the plaintiffs would have to demonstrate that all African descendants wear, say, locks um, or braids or twists, or that only African descendants wear locks, braids, or twists. And I call this, you know, absolutely a, a pretty, it's a high evidentiary burden, right, if you were to apply this immutability doctrine to these race discrimination cases that are challenging grooming policies. So, Yes. So that's just you know, there's more to it but that's that's pretty much you know it in a nutshell in terms of the you know the ways in which the courts have interpreted uh, uh interpreted title 7 at this point.
0: Mm. So, it's my understanding from your paper that there's sort of a history of discrimination claims being brought by pain- plaintiffs alleging that they were discriminated against on the basis of their hairstyle. But that, like, one really kind of important case in the area is Rogers v. American Airlines, which, on one level, seems to have said that yes, you can bring this kind of claim, but on a different level or in a different way, almost seems to foreclose or potentially foreclose a lot of claims that might otherwise seem meritorious and and viable. I, I I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that case, sort of what happened and what the court's reasoning was there.
1: Sure. So in Rogers versus American Airlines, which was decided by a federal district court in New York in 1981, it is one of those seminal cases where you have an African American female employee who um, was a longtime customer service agent with American Airlines. She decided to wear what we know as cornrow braids, um, cornrow um, hairstyle, in her capacity as a customer service agent. And American Airlines prohibited. Prohibited her from wearing the the braided hairstyle while working. And so she challenged this under both section nineteen eighty-one of the eighteen sixty-six Civil Rights Act as well as the Title Seven of the Nineteen Sixty Four Civil Rights Act as a form of intentional race and sex discrimination so she brought this as an intersectional discrimination claim and one of her arguments was that you know this should be treated as race discrimination because braided hairstyles are historically uh significant to african descendants as well as it is a signifier of our cultural heritage and um and so what happens is that the, the the judge deciding the case says that it is not a form of race discrimination to bar um, African-American women from wearing uh, braided hairstyles. In this case, he also cre- and he uses this immutability doctrine to to come up with this um uh, to sort of ground his decision. And so there are lots of different reasons as to why we get here. One of the main reasons we see here is that he, in my, in what I argue is that he, he's probably very much mis misinformed about um, African-Americans' hair um, and also the history of these natural hairstyles that uh, African-Americans, in particular African-American women, commonly adorn, like braids and twists and locks. Um, in, the, in this case, he also declares that pursuant to this immutability doctrine That discrimination on the basis of afros could likely be viewed as unlawful race discrimination. However, um, he perceives uh, these braided hairstyles that Miss Rogers is wearing as an artifice, as something that is not real or something that is not natural. To her, because ironically or interestingly, uh, Bo Derek had worn cornrows. <laughs> I, I don't mean to laugh, but it is actually kind of laughable because, uh, you know, uh, Bo Derek had worn braids in the movie 10 a few years prior. So in his mind, he, he or at least in his opinion, he says, well, this is not about being African-American because men um, are subject to this 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 grooming policy. And it's not about being an African-American woman because white women, too, can likewise be subject to this policy and be barred from wearing braided hairstyles.
0: Mm. I mean, do you think that in some way, it was sort of a function of the historical moment? I mean, you know, 1981, I think of like, the black power movement still being very much in people's minds and Afro's kind of being in a sense like a political statement about African-American culture and, and the civil rights movement and, and so on. I mean, do you, do you think that that sort of kind of socio-political context was informing the way the judge was interpreting the sort of meaning or I guess, quote unquote, naturalness, which just seems like a weird way to put it, of particular hairstyles?
1: Sure, absolutely, because you do have some cases that preceded rogers versus uh, Rogers versus American Airlines where individuals were challenging um, regulations of their afros and they were doing so as a form of intentional race discrimination. And in some cases, even, you know, kind of under this theory of, say, they're being retaliated against because possibly their Afro is signifying their a political statement, right? Or opposition to, to racial inequality um, or, or, or other types of, of, of or, or systematic racial discrimination, the kinds of which that we would likely associate with, you know, broader social political movements at the time, like the Black Panther um, movement or black power movement. And so definitely, I think that that was being, um, you know, sort of like a a signal or a symbol of, you know, the black is beautiful movement as well. Um, and so, you know, it was very much, you know, closely linked and tied to one's African ancestry and culture. So I could definitely see and, and and do see how the judge in this case could have likely viewed discrimination on the basis of an Afro as um a form of race discrimination. Um and in light of that political and social Context in which he is deciding the case, it also appears that because she's wearing, you know, extensions and it's not sort of a a, a natural manipu or, or an inevitable manipulation of her natural hair, let me say that, an ine- inevitable manipulation of, say, her natural hair texture, um, that's when we also see him describing uh, her hair as an artifice or something that is fake. And so there's this understanding that that, you know, race discrimination would only embody discrimination on the basis of a characteristic or trait that is something that you're born with. Like, for example, um, that you're born with or you cannot change. Like, for example, one skin color, or at least in some individuals' minds, like, for example, an Afro. Because there is, you know, this common perception that African descendants are the only ones who are born with Afros, um, or to the extent that you're born with an Afro, there is a chance that you have African ancestry. So yeah, I could see that too being, uh, playing a role, um, in, in the decision-making.
0: Mm, mm. Well, so there's been 40 years since the Rogers case. Sort of what's what's happened in the interim? I mean, in your paper, you talk about some more recent cases. Have courts sort of taken a broader view and looked more generously or kind of more, more um, open-mindedly on what would count as a kind of protected hairstyle for the purpose of discrimination law or
1: not? Unfortunately, no, they have not. So they have not uh, interpreted the statute in a more expansive uh, way, and that's where my scholarship enters. Is because I have been advocating and advancing that federal courts and federal judges actually interpret the meaning of race and the notion of unlawful discrimination in a more expansive way that would cover these kinds of harmful forms of regulation and discrimination um, on the basis of mutable characteristics or characteristics that can be changed and are closely associated with one's racial or ethnic um, uh, uh, identity. And so what has happened, you know, almost 40 years after uh, this decision in Rogers versus American Airlines is that when we have these challenges against natural hairstyle bans in workplaces, except for in the case of afros, um, uh, consistently and and almost in, in pretty much very, in, in what I would argue, kind of blindly, they keep reifying or reinforcing this immutability doctrine to say that discrimination on the basis of mutable characteristics uh, will not ever constitute unlawful race discrimination. It has to be discrimination on the basis of immutable characteristics, arguably like skin color. And um, and again, carving out this very, very narrow or limited exception as it relates to Afros, because presumably an Afro is an immutable characteristic of Blackness.
0: Yeah. I mean, what do you think about this kind of quote unquote natural or immutable framework as the basis for thinking about prohibited discrimination as opposed to permitted, I guess, choices by an employer. I mean, it just seems really odd to me to sort of identify one way of wearing your hair as natural and other ways of wearing your hair as, I guess, not, not natural. I mean, it seems like more maybe about it ought to be more about like the kind of meaning that they communicate about the kind of social relationships you have with people and choices people want to make about how they look.
1: Right. No, absolutely. Um, With, with, you know, I a big part of my scholarship is the way I, I, I use these um, grooming codes cases as a way to actually challenge and hopefully dismantle the immutability doctrine and its application in uh, federal civil rights jurisprudence, whether it be under statutory law or even under constitutional law, which we can probably talk about at another time, but um, absolutely, I do not think that this is a to to kind of go back. It's a judicially created um, doctrine. Nowhere in the statute does it say that immutability is a requirement in order to dispense statutory protection. So there's that problem, and in in the. And another problem with this is that the strict application of immutability in race discrimination cases, and at least in the the past with respect to sometimes sex discrimination and national origin discrimination cases, I argue that it really brings about uh, legal interpretations of the statute that undermine the objectives of the statute, uh, which is to bring about equal opportunity for all individuals regardless of their race to think about the to also try to protect against discrimination that has these very negative consequences and harms um, and a, a systematic exclusion of individuals from opportunities for which they are qualified on the basis of race and other protected, classifications. And then thirdly, this immutability doctrine is one that is very much grounded, at least I argue, in very outdated um, notions of biological um, or genetic race. And now, especially today in 2019, that, you know identity is being challenged in a lot of different ways and being expressed in a lot of different ways that would that are challenging and, and sort of um, disrupting our, our, our notion of identity as something that's fixed and stable and biological and heritable in nature. And our anti-discrimination law and interpretation of it should reflect this.
0: Right. So, I mean, if the immutability doctrine as it currently exists is really inconsistent with the goals of anti-discrimination law properly understood, like, is there something we should replace it with or maybe just replace it with nothing? Like, how do you think courts ought to be thinking about these questions?
1: Sure. So there's a couple of ways. The first way that I argue in in my scholarship is that we can uh, define race. And this is something that's at the heart of EEOC versus catastrophe management solutions. How, you know, most of the, our statutes, our anti-discrimination laws don't actually define these protected classifications like race and sex, national origin, or, or color. Um, and, and you are probably familiar with some of the cases involved transgender plaintiffs right now before the Supreme Court, and that's one of the major questions is what is sex, right? And we leave it up to uh, the judges to to define these very important terms for us. And so one of the things that I argue is that race should be defined as uh, traits or characteristics that are commonly associated with particular racial Groups and um, and whether it's being historically associated with that particular racial group or even contemporarily associated with a particular racial group, so that's one way that we can we can eliminate the the application of the immutability doctrine is just by virtue of defining uh, race and other classifications in a way that reflects you know reality and the operation of discrimination. Um, And and, and, and more specifically, uh, through the lens of, of recognizing that race is a social construct, like other types of identity constructs. Um, So that's one way we could do it. Secondarily, we can actually look to the plain language of the statute once again and think about the ways in which the the grooming policy or practice more broadly is infringing upon or depriving someone of terms, privileges, and conditions of employment. That's Plain language in Title VII, for example. And in these cases, dealing with African descendants who are challenging natural hairstyle bans, they are, you know, systematically being excluded from opportunities uh, that they're qualified for um, on the basis of their race and sometimes their race and gender. And also we see in the cases in that I talk about in the articles where we're seeing individuals who are also denied certain privileges because of their race um, and, and suffering differential treatment in terms and conditions of employment because of their race by virtue of them wearing natural hairstyles like locks, braids, and twists.
0: Right. I mean, maybe you could... Just describe a, quickly a couple examples of that because I found the the actual factual circumstances really compelling and a powerful illustration of what's actually going on here.
1: Sure. So, for example, you will find in one case where you had an, an African American female employee who had um, donned a natural hairstyle to work, and her supervisor apparently did not like her hairstyle and told her that she needed to change it into something to a to a pretty hairstyle So she, so the employee goes and changes her hairstyle and presumably she goes to the hair salon and her hairstylist changes her hairstyle. So she's expending more energy and time and money to change her hairstyle to fit uh, the construction of beauty and and attractiveness that her supervisor, um, you know, subjectively holds. So she comes back with, you know, two strand twists and the supervisor again is not pleased and asks her to change her hairstyle again again. Well, the the, the the employee refuses to do so, and we can understand why. It doesn't appear that her hairstyle is infringing or having in, any impact whatsoever on her ability to adequately and effectively perform her job. So she doesn't change her hairstyle. And then what happens is that the 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 the, the management decides to implement a new policy that instructs Employees who have locks or braids or twists to cover their hair with a visor or a cap or a hat. So that's just one example where we have African-American, an African-American woman who is wearing her hair as she sees fits. As she sees fit and that is actually her natural hairstyles uh, um, the way in which her hair naturally grows and she's having to to conform and spend money and time and energy conforming to sub- subjective ideals of what is beautiful or attractive um, or what is pleasing to her supervisor in ways in which we don't often see other um, individuals having to do so, namely, um, say white women in the workplace. Mm,
0: mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I gotta say, it just seems bizarre to me that courts can't see that these are workplace rules targeted exclusively at black women that seem to be really incredibly burdensome and also kind of like demeaning and patronizing as well. Um, And like, it's, I just reading your article, I couldn't understand, like, how is it that they can't see that, you know, the people against whom these rules are being created and enforced always seem to be within this protected class? I mean, it seems like that ought to be enough in and of itself.
1: Right. No, I absolutely agree with you. There, you know, there has been an instance where, say, a grooming policy like this that mandates, um, uh, that individuals who have locks or braids have to cover their locks with um, a, a hat, you know, almost exclusively uh, impacted the African-American male employees. And like it was a, like 90, 70 percent of the employees who had locks were and, and, and who were subject to this policy were African-American men. And even in that instance, the federal court in that case said it wasn't about race discrimination. Um, and it was not, uh, you know, unlawful under under, so under the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So it is quite puzzling that you know the judges are are unable to appreciate the the disproportionality here, and also the the types of burdens that these grooming policies impose upon African descendants, the very unique kind of burdens. So, for example, in EEOC versus catastrophe management solutions, we have the EEOC, you know, pretty, I think, effectively arguing in their briefs that what happens when we Impose a natural hair band, a ban in in workplaces for African American women, it has very acute harms um, than say for very acute physical and, and emotional and uh, psychological as well as economic harms than is is likely the case as it relates to African American men. So, for example, when you ban natural hair hairstyles that African American women would likely wear, it pretty much amounts to what I call a straight hair mandate or expectation. And in order to wear a straightened hairstyle or to maintain straightened hairstyles, many African-American women will use very toxic chemical relaxants to, to straighten their hair and also extreme heat styling to straighten or maintain their hair and they also will in engage in or wear wigs and weaves that too can be very damaging to your hair and to your scalp. And so what we see here is that you know African American women will um, you know kind of you know deal with you know temporary and permanent. Uh, hair damage and scalp damage and balding. We also see African-American women who then have to to, to use money and time to actually rehabilitate or restore their hair health. Um, similarly, when, or, or additionally, when African-American women are maintaining straightened hairstyles, we overwhelmingly see women who are not engaging in physical activities like exercise, and that can trigger some types of health-related uh, implications. So, for example, higher rates of obesity um, and and medical uh, ailments that are are related to obesity, like diabetes and heart disease, right? Um, and then also something to keep in mind is that now there's this research that demonstrates that there's a likely correlation between these chemical relaxants that African-American women or African-descendant women and girls use to higher rates of uterine fibroids and uterine cancer Mm. and and increased rates of more serious uh, breast cancer. And so these are really, really, um, um, you know, just these kinds of burdens, what you're speaking to, right? So it's these health-related burdens. And also if you think about the time and energy and money that uh, Black women are inordinately spending to maintain uh, straight hair uh, mandates or expectations or to meet those things. These are the kinds of burdens that were being put before the court in EEOC versus Catastrophe Management Solutions. And the court actually... um, did not appreciate those things and still ultimately held that this was not a race discrimination.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, in your paper you sort of suggested a reframing that I thought was really interesting to like say that courts should stop asking whether some aspect of a person's appearance can change, but rather to think about the question as when they can be required to change. I mean, mm-hmm. how do you think that shift would affect the way we ask and answer these kinds of questions?
1: Right. So, you know, that question really does to me if I think if we if we ask it should someone have to change it as opposed to could someone change it. Well, there are a lot of things that we actually can change. But when we take into consideration these types of burdens and types of consequences, then I think pretty, you know, pretty clearly... Any reasonable decision maker would say that we should not uh, require African-American women and men um, to have to change their natural hairstyles in order to, uh, to, to be granted an employment opportunity for which they're otherwise qualified. And that was really what was going on in EEOC versus Catastrophe Management Solutions is that she was actually the plaintiff in that case, Chastity Jones, was extended the job offer. She had been in a series of interviews all morning long and was ultimately extended the job offer. So therefore, her qualifications were assessed. And and she was one of the top applicants, obviously. And then it wasn't until she was leaving the HR manager's office to go home that the HR manager asked ask her, where are those locks that you're wearing? And she tells her that they are. And that's when the HR manager says, well, I can no longer maintain this job offer for job offer uh, unless you uh, cut your hair. She basically implied that she had to cut off her locks and goes on to say, well, I'm not saying that yours are, but you know, they can get messy. You know what I mean? (laughs) So there's this propensity to become messy standard or or idea that um she's applying that that African Americans' natural hairstyles like locks have a greater propensity to become messy than any other person's hair, which is absolutely ridiculous, right? Um, uh, because all of our hair, can be messy. And be
0: messy. <laughs> yeah, she, she she should see my hair sometimes.
1: <laughs> right, right, but you know, but is she perceiving her hair to be messy because she is African American woman who is not wearing the straightened hairstyle, right? Um, and so, yes, yeah, she can absolutely she could cut off her hair, but should she have to cut off her hair? in order to maintain this job opportunity that she's already demonstrated that she is exceedingly qualified for. And I think the answer, should she cut off her hair in light of that circumstance, in light of that factual circumstance, we would say absolutely not. And therefore, um, this can be a plausible claim of race discrimination. Thankfully,
0: courts don't have the last say. On the subject, uh, the legislature can override a lot of the judicial decision making. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your advocacy work in that area, and the recent legislative successes that your that advocacy work has seen.
1: Sure. So recently I've served as the legal expert on the Crown Act out of California. The Crown Act stands for Creating Respectful and Open Workplaces for Natural Hair Act. And the Crown Act of California that was signed into law on July 3rd, in, um, and also the California, I'm sorry, the Crown Act in New York State, which was signed into law just about a week later after uh, California's, they both clarify that their anti discrimination protections. Prohibit discrimination on the basis of natural and protective hairstyles. Um, they also clarify that race is now defined as um, characteristics that are historically associated with 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 race. That is, and that means that's inclusive of, but not limited to, uh, natural hairstyles and protective hairstyles like afros, braids, twists, and bantu knots. So this protection, this, these two forms of statewide protection, these are the first forms of statewide protection in, in the United States and, and I have to say globally, um, that will treat natural hair discrimination as race discrimination and is extended to schools and workplaces. Additionally, my legal scholarship has been instrumental in agency guidance on municipal levels, as well as on the federal level. The EEOC in EEOC versus Catastrophe Management Solutions case, for example, used my legal scholarship to articulate uh, their uh, legal theories that uh, this natural hair style ban or this ban against locks is a form of race discrimination. And more recently, the New York City Commission on Human Rights. Rights uh, declare that likewise, uh, natural hair discrimination um, is a form of race discrimination in workplaces, schools, and in public accommodations. And this is the most expansive municipal level uh, protections of this kind in the United States.
0: Mm. Well, Wendy, congratulations on having such a meaningful impact, both through your advocacy and through your scholarship in this area where, I mean, it really just seems so overdue to me and so obvious that this should be protected.
1: Well, thank you so much. And I'll have to say that Splitting Hairs, this article that we're talking about, (laughs) is one of those key pieces of scholarship that both the... um, that both uh, the New York, Sem- New York City Commission on Human Rights has used as well as um, the California uh, legislative uh, officials and, um, and their staff in, in uh, crafting this, these uh, legislative interventions. So thank you so much. It's, it's, it's really quite a, an honor and very humbling to see your legal scholarship turn into the law.
0: <laughs> and gratifying too, I imagine. Yes, it
1: is. It is. It is. Well, it seems like, I, you know, I, I must have done something a little right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, Wendy, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, it was really fun reading your scholarship and talking to you about it. And I hope listeners will check out your paper and all the advocacy work that you've been doing. <laughs>
2: Our old friend Elvis was one of those songs that used to get lost on the B-side of a single. It's a hard-rockin' number called Baby's Got a Brand New Hairdo. Elvis Costello and the Apexons. Baby's got a brand new hairdo. And in the lyrics, Elvis sings, She Looks Like Billy Boy Arnold, saying, I wish you would. I wish you would.